Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, we hear from Nigel Sharman, chairman of the Hong Kong Welsh Male Voice Choir. About the upcoming dates where you can see the choir and hear them in the run-up to Christmas. The choir is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year and I'll have the choir back on for the last programme of the year. Right now, here it comes. It's Baker's Jaguar. He's still driving very fast, followed by Lisa Cortina, which again is being followed by K.H. Chang. It's also the Macau Grand Prix this weekend, so we'll be hearing a segment from the archives from the Macau Grand Prix of 1965. But first, David Bellis of the Hong Kong history website Grulo.com has created a book of photos of Hong Kong that he collected from eBay and other sources. But it's the stories behind the photos that attract him. I joined him in Kowloon Tong, near the railway, to hear about Hong Kong photos and the tales they tell, Volume 1, with Volume 2 about to be released in early December. The easiest way to get someone interested in history it's the pictures and I've been thinking about that recently and I, and I think it's because when you read you have to read what the person's telling you but when you look at the picture you can really like come up with your own stories and see what you want to see and an, a nice few stories have come back from the book where people have used it to start conversations with like elderly relatives because if you say oh tell us about your time when you were young granny it can be quite a struggle but if you sit with them and look through the book and then they start looking at the picture it brings up the memories and you just start telling stories so I love that in terms of the photos where do you get them from well they come from all over eBay is the easiest one and through eBay you just can't guess the countries they come from I guess years and years ago these would have been tourists or people here on a business trip who've bought them and they've sat in an attic or something and Often, unfortunately, somebody's passed away and then the stuff's gone to auction, ends up on eBay and, and makes its way back to Hong Kong. So do you have moments where you go, oh, there's a cracker? <laughs> I do, and the other ones I can't afford, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, can people collect photographs at a reasonable price still in, in Hong Kong? Mm, it is tricky for, for Hong Kong. Hong Kong just is, is priced way, way above any of the other markets I look at. Within your first book, how did you make the decisions on what would go in? Uh, it has to have a story. So there aren't too many of the traditional in a harbour with the junks in. There's got to be some sort of story to tell. And, and, and that proved to be a bit of a stumbling point with the, the designer I was working with. They would sort of come back to me and say, this is not a good photo, David. You know, the, the quality isn't there, it's blurry, it's not an interesting subject. And I say, oh, you're missing the point. It's the story that we're looking for. So if I, if I can show you a couple... Here's one that, that is a good photo. You know, it was a professionally taken picture and it's unveiling the cenotaph in 1923. The photographer set up his tripod up on the Supreme Court building. So he's looking out over the cenotaph and we've got the Hong Kong Club on the right. Beautifully sharp, you know, the lighting's fantastic. Brilliant. So designer didn't have a problem with this one. But the first one in the book, it is a bit blurry and there isn't a whole lot going on but it's over on the lamppost this is the one where we found our first rat bin you know it's something that I'd read about and I'd never seen and then here we are and this has been the one that that does start off lots of stories with, with older people in Hong Kong because they all go oh, I remember seeing those yes or oh you know once I had a look in there and I asked my armor what was in there and she stuck my hand and said never to look in there again it's with very strong emotions with dead rats <laughs> yes I'm sure so what else is in that photograph what else can we see at the background there's a little second hand bookstore 
with a little kid sat here and he looks like he's reading his way through all of the stories. On the front, there's a hawker, got a whole bunch of stuff laid out. You can see it was on a shoulder pole. And this came from a set of pictures taken by an American in the 1930s. So I think he's probably down in somewhere like Cat Street. And this is the market, just like there's a market there today, you know, someone's selling the odds and ends. As you say, yeah, it's, it's not the sharpest photograph, but you've, I quite like on the right you've got somebody actually looking at the photographer with curiosity. And on the left there you've got rat bins. So these were a key feature of Hong Kong where and it was following in the plague, really, wasn't it? It was a hygiene issue. So what do you do? Just bop the rat over the head and pop him in the bin? No, the other way around. This was a, a humane well, device. The, the rat would bop you on the head. <laughs> yeah, that came after the plague. Even worse, the, the attack of the killer rats. <laughs> If you found a dead rat, so you didn't didn't actually actively go out <laughs> killing them, <laughs> they had died already. Uh, you, you find a dead rat and then you drop it in the bin. And the, the bins were all over town and they were cleared away twice a day. And then the rats were taken off to the bacteriologist who checked to see if there was plague. And you can see the, the bin's got a number on here, 109. So every rat had a little label on it saying this came from bin 109 or 52 or whichever one. And if they found it did have plague, then they went back to that area straight away and did a big check and clean all the houses. And so what era are we talking then, you know, in terms of how long did we have rat bins? They were definitely reported around, like, the 1910s, 1920s. This photo's from the 1930s. And I think we had people... Let me just check the book here. Hang on a second. Oh, is, that, is that the book by David Bellis? That'll be accurate. <laughs> here we go. We've had people remembering them as late as the 1970s, so... Yes, now, I know that you like coming across fire hydrants and noting down the numbers on the fire hydrants, but do rat bins still exist? Can you see them in museums or anything? There's one in the Museum of Medical Sciences. Yeah, I agree that, that sometimes the, the photo, it's a story it tells, not, not whether it's super sharp quality. I think also in Hong Kong, there's the standard shot. So it's I, I love when it moves into the back streets, when it's got a community feel about it. Yes, they're the ones that are... You know, you were saying earlier, do you stumble across one and go, whoa, that's the one I'd love to have? And it's because there's, there's so much around Central and Hong Kong Island. And it's uh, as you get further away from that, they just get rarer and rarer. So I've got one photo from the islands, for example, from Tayo. That's it, just the one. Yes. Um, well, who was carrying a camera and who had time? Exactly. So it's, it's where did the tourists go at that time? You know, and, and usually it was the tourists visited Hong Kong Island, they did a little trip around the island, saw a few sites, got back on their liner and went away. So that's the pictures they were sold. Now, that was your first book of photographs, and you're just about to publish your second. Funnily enough, thank you very much for the plug. Just before Christmas. <laughs> just in time for Christmas, girls and boys. Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you two girls and boys who won't be looking forward to it, and that's my daughters. <laughs> They're both going to get one, and it'll be like, oh, Dad, <laughs> not another one. Sorry, girls. You'd be happy to know there's going to be five volumes, so that's your Christmas present sorted for the next few years. So, book number two is nearly, nearly, nearly ready. We'll see the proofs tomorrow. So I can't give you the book, but I've brought along the last photo in the, the book to show you. With all these photos, you know, they've got layers of stories. So the first one is, look on the back, it's all ripped paper, so it's obviously been pulled out of somebody's album for sale. And then on the bottom, we've got Aerial Ropeway, Kang Hao, KCRLY. So it's something to do with the, the old KCR, Kowloon Canton Railway. And if I could, I'd like to take you on a little walk. We're, we're near to the Kowloon Tong 
railway station now if we can walk just up the hill to Cornwall Street and see if there's something I can give you a surprise with. I saw it for the first time last week and I was surprised and I, I hope you'll be surprised too. So here you've got two men and a dog. <laughs> two men two men and two dogs. A dog for every man. Yes. And they are sitting in a very strange looks like a sort of a suspended park bench. So let me show you what we'll see and then I'll come back and explain the, the flying park bench and what that was all about. You've taken me to a very busy, busy road. We've just the taken... worst possible place to record an interview. <laughs> so why are we here? Why are we here? <laughs> so those men were working on a project, and two clues to the project from where we were just sitting. I'm not sure if your listeners could hear the KCR announcements or the MTR now announcements in the background. So we were sat near to the Kowloon Tong station, and off in the distance we could see, on this lovely sunny day, we could see uh, Beacon Hill. So. We'll come up to Cornwall Street, we'll walk a few paces, and then I want you to peer over the, the wall. So are we looking down at the railway here? We're looking at the original railway, and this is what they built. So we're looking at the mouth to the old Beacon Hill Railway Tunnel. Yeah. It's, uh, it was a single track, so that's why it looks a lot smaller than the modern one that they, they replaced it with. Um, and the, the two men in the picture, they were miners. So they were some of the people that, that dug out this tunnel. It's quite overgrown now, but I've got a picture taken just after it was finished. I don't know if you can see, you can just see the double N of, of the, the word there in the lintel above the tunnel on the, on the one we're looking at. Mostly it's overgrown, but when it was clear, you can see the dates, 1906, and in the middle here, Beacon Hill Tunnel, and over on the right, 1910 a group of proud miners in front of their work. I think we'll go somewhere quieter, but this is so interesting. There's this old entry to a tunnel, all nice brickwork, they've never seen before. Oh, it'd be nice to do that one up, wouldn't it? Get rid of some of the, the shrubs and things. Oh, yes, it's a shame that it's, it's covered over and lost. It's still in use. If you look down at ground level, you can see they use it now for a couple of pipelines that they run from here over to Daiwai and on from there. Well, we've come, come off the busy road and we're sitting in... The, the little Kent Road Park. Yes. It's a lovely tucked away one. Yes, I've not been here before. We've got a nice blue sky, lots of tropical trees in front of us. Yeah, Beacon Hill in the background there. And David Bellison, his favourite <laughs> floppy hat. <laughs> Thank goodness it's on radio. <laughs> so here's the picture again. So let me tell you some more about its story. So the bit at the bottom, Aerial Ropeway, Kang Hao, KC Railway. So the KC Railway is obvious. They were working on this big Beacon Hill uh, tunnel project. Kang Hao, we call it Gang Hao now, is a, a village near to um, Daiwai on the other side of Beacon Hill. And originally it's where the camps were for all the miners. And all of the European miners were just being struck down by malaria because it was right in the middle of a, of a paddy field village area there. So the doctors for the railway said, you need to get these men up the hill. So they moved the camp up to Satin Heights, and then the problem is, well, how do you get to and from your, your work every day? And they built a cable car, so that's the aerial ropeway. So the, the flying park bench they're sitting in is the, the cable car that they went to and from work every day. And then the last story about these people is their look. And I, I don't know if you can make it out, but if you look at them, they just don't look very English, 1908. They, they have that look about them, the clothes, they're a bit more stylish. So they had a lot of trouble with the British miners. You can just hang on a second, I'll read you a little quote from the reports at the time. Yeah, so originally they used British miners 
and that didn't turn out too well. So here's the report for 1908, and it says it was found difficult to obtain good foremen. Those sent out from home, though they knew their work well, were often troublesome to deal with. The cost of getting them out from home made it possible for them to behave very badly before they could be dismissed, and they in many cases took full advantage of this. Uh-oh. So the, uh, the British miners were a bit of a dead loss. They looked around, and in Yunnan in southern China, there'd been another railway project with a group of Italian miners, and that had just finished. So the Italian miners were in the district already looking for work, so they said, OK, you come and work on the project instead. And I think that's who we're looking at in the picture. And we, we get to hear a little bit about them when the North Tunnelling Team and the South Tunnelling Team meet in the middle and they, they have a big party. So it says that Mr Waite proposed a toast to the miners. He had never worked with a better lot of men, he said, men who knew their work and did it well. He did not speak of the British miners alone, but also of the Italians whose expertness in machine drill worked, if equaled, could not be excelled. So high praise. And then you think, quit while you're ahead. Because they break for what the newspaper says was a jolly tiffin. And then a Mr Eve stands up and he says, many English people think Italians are a dangerous sort of people to meet, as they always think they have a knife somewhere concealed about them, ready to stick into one. But I can contradict this most flatly. A more law-abiding and quiet set of men than Mr Geller and his fellow men here, I think, could not be found anywhere. Anyway, then the Commodore, I suppose, Volpicelli, anyway, the Italian consul stands up, quietly ignores the knife references and, and asks the Italians to raise a toast. The toast was honoured with many vivas, and as the toasters resumed their seats, the store rang with loud applause. So they've got a happy ending to the, the story there. And a jolly tiffin all round. Yeah, I think the jolly tiffin was perhaps a bit too jolly for Mr Eves. <laughs> anyway, the, the Mr Geller's funny. We did a little internet search, and the Geller tunnelling business in Italy is still going strong and if you look on their website you know on their list of projects achieved the uh, the Beacon Hill Tunnel is up there on their, their list. Oh how interesting I'd love to know, I think I wrote to them but didn't get a reply whether the man in the picture is actually Mr Geller Oh that's interesting, so that's all just off one photo and where did you find the photograph? That one is an eBay photo that's one we did manage to get it's a little, I'll show you a few others about four I think all together and it was just the men having a little rest. What have we got here? So taken at the Kowloon Canton Railway bungalow. So presumably these are the ones at the top of the hill where they would travel to and from work. They all seem to like dogs. They've all got little puppies of various sorts. And a shotgun. <laughs> Shotguns. I don't know quite what, what that was used for. This one here. Well, it's because he didn't have a knife in his pocket, probably. <laughs> he said, yeah, don't worry about the knife, matey. I've got a shotgun. <laughs> But I, I don't know. I mean, maybe they would have. They perhaps would have. I don't know whether they would have been allowed to shoot anything for meat. Well, there was certainly hunting in the new territories. People would go out hunting, wouldn't they? So yeah, supplement the jolly tiffin. <laughs> so yeah, so just a little example. You, know, you look at a picture once, and there's the obvious things to find. But I enjoy the digging a little bit deeper and seeing what else we can uncover. I'm talking to David Bellis, who has written and showcased the photos of old Hong Kong photos and the tales they tell. Volume 1, Volume 2 is just about to come at the start of December. And this is all ties in with his history website. Yeah, so do sign up for that, the history website of Hong Kong, grulo.com. There's all sorts of uh, interesting ways in which David will take you where people are doing all sorts of different types of research or have put up extracts of books. It can be uh, families that, that people want more found out about. Uh, but certainly you've got... Uh, uh, how many pages now? It's the end of last year, it was up to about 30,000, and that includes about 15,000 photos. So there's plenty to keep you busy. You'll be there reading it for a while. 
So with old Hong Kong photos and the tales they tell, so you just, you used to, or you still do, you give photograph talks um, and, and it's based on also what you found on eBay. So each time you're taking several specific themes or just taking a photo and then find, doing some detective work around it. It's changed. The first book that came out was a pretty random collection of odds and ends. The second book which is based on the second talk I did get a little bit more organized so we've split it into four four themes four groups of pictures for volume two we start off with a, a walk around central you know that's pretty traditional look at the old buildings around central then we follow Jean Gittins the Hotong daughter and she writes about traveling from the peak to DGS every day over in Kowloon so we use her route to school and look at so diocesan girls school over in Kowloon yeah yes that's right you know, it's a heck of a trip that she used to make and one of the funny little comments is that where the weather was good, she used to go on donkey. Who was the, the man that just passed away recently? Michael Wright. Michael Wright. And he has yes. the same story of living on the peak and going to school on a donkey. So this must have been you know, the thing you did at the time. Dad, how come we haven't got a donkey? Everyone's got a donkey. Yeah. But then he used to love coming back on a... Uh, he told me, this is Michael Wright, who was the former director of public works who passed away at the age of 105 in January and was a super fund of information and gladly given by him and a wonderful memory of the history of Hong Kong. He'd been born here on the peak in 1912 and he'd, he's described how, yes, went to school on a donkey and then his armour would bring or one of the men employees of the house would actually um, bring two scooters for him and his brother because it was all downhill on Fantastic. the way home. <laughs> yeah, you could just go scream. No cars, of course. So you just went screaming home all the way downhill on your scooter. No brakes! <laughs> so volume two coming out, hopefully, early December. So I thought uh, a quick giveaway, if we could. At the end of the month, I'll be doing a, a pre-launch offer where it sells a little bit cheaper and you get to be at the, the front of the queue. It'll run for about two weeks. How many copies do you think will be ordered? <laughs> so if you'd like to have a guess, send that in to Dan uh, Marie. I'll send her along the final number, and whoever's closest, I'll send a copy of Volume 1 and 2. So it's basically, uh, we've got to guess how many you'll sell? In that pre-launch period, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll give you a clue. Last year I asked, this was all happening for the first time, and I asked my wife. And then what, what I thought was a shocking lack of support, she said, um, probably about 50 if we're lucky. Anyway, I'm happy to say we did sell more than 50. So you've got to think of a number bigger than 50. That's the only clue I'll give you. <laughs> My thanks to David Bellis there of the Hong Kong history website, grulo.com, talking there on his books, Hong Kong Photos and The Tales They Tell, Volumes 1 and 2. And if you'd like to take a guess at how many David will sell in pre-sales, then do email me on hkhradio3 at gmail.com. That's hkh. Radio 3 at gmail.com. The Hong Kong Welsh Male Voice Choir is celebrating its 40th birthday this year and I'll be featuring them on the weekend of December the 29th. But I caught up with Chairman Nigel Sharman on the phone to hear about what concerts the choir has lined up ahead of Christmas. So the next concert is on the Tuesday the 20th of November at the Cathedral. It's called the Charitable Concert of Inspiring Lives 2018. It's the renaming of the HIV Centre there, but it's an annual concert, always very popular. And so that's St John's Cathedral? That's St John's Cathedral, that's right. 
And then on Tuesday, the 4th of December, again at the cathedral, there's the uh, popular Light Up a Life concert in aid of the Society for Promotion of Hospice Care. Tickets always go fast for that one. And again, that's at the cathedral uh, on the 4th of December. And then we're around town at quite a few of the popular clubs that people know about. Uh, we're at Cyberport on the 15th of December in the afternoon at 3 o'clock. And people might, if they want a cream tea before Christmas, see, see us at the peninsula on the <laughs> 22nd and 23rd of December. So basically, just to run through those again, on the uh, 20th of November, you'll be at St John's Cathedral. What time is that? That's at 7.30. And then on uh, December the 4th, that's a Tuesday evening. That's right, and that's again at St John's Cathedral. Um, gets booked up early, that one, for the, for the hospice concert again at 7.30. On the 15th of December, that's a Saturday, we're at Cyberport at uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then getting closer towards Christmas on the Saturday and Sunday, just before Christmas, 22nd and 23rd, we're at the Peninsula at 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock on each of those days. Oh, lovely. So uh, if people want to get tickets for, the, say, the St John's Cathedral concerts, uh, where should they go online? So they should go to the Cathedral Bookshop um, or the one for the hospice. There is a website for the, light, for the Society for the Promotion of Hospice Care, but if you're around Central, you're around Garden Road, the Cathedral Bookshop is probably the best place to, uh, to get information and tickets for, for both of those concerts there. Now, so, Nigel, you were saying that you've been uh, a member of the choir for seven years and we'll be doing our Hong Kong Heritage programme to mark the 40th anniversary on the 29th of December. So there'll be all sorts of music coming from the Hong Kong Welsh Male Voice Choir. Now, along with those upcoming concerts, you've also entered a competition. We are entering to go and sing at the East Edford in Clancochlan in Wales next July, which will be very exciting. And for that, we have to submit... Uh, a sample of our work, which we are doing currently. And then we hope to, to sing with many other choirs at the, at the International I Steadford there in Wales uh, next summer. And the I Steadford is? The I Steadford is the international singing competition that brings together Welsh male voice choirs and Welsh music, uh, Welsh musical performers from, from around the world. Well, best of luck with that. I understand that, that uh, and we're also playing a little bit of music of the Hong Kong Welsh Male Voice Choir around this, that, that uh, for that you're singing in Welsh, you're singing in Cantonese, is that right? That's right. We sing in other languages as well, but, um, but Welsh, Cantonese, English. Uh, we've sung a bit in, uh, in Tagalog in the past, in, in the Thai language. So, yes, we, we try to get around in terms of the performances and the songs we sing. Well, thanks very much for your time today. That was Nigel Sharman of the Hong Kong Welsh Male Voice Choir. So good luck with all your concerts in the run-up to Christmas, and I look forward to doing our programme together that will be broadcast on the 29th of December. Thank you, Anne-Marie.
My thanks to Nigel Sharman, chairman of the Hong Kong Welsh Male Voice Choir. And to finish up the programme, as it's the weekend of the Macau Grand Prix, this is a bit of vintage recording from the 1965 Macau Grand Prix with commentators including broadcaster Ted Thomas, who was formerly a head of Radio 3. John Kirk now in his red Cortina with the legend Yam Cow painted on the body over the wheel and he's followed at a fair distance by uh, the jag that I think was delaying him a little bit of David Marr. So to see those go through and see how John is picking up, maybe we can follow him around. Ted, back to you at the grandstand. Yes, John, that was George Baker just going underneath me now. Steve Holland has a lead over George Baker. And don't forget that Steve is driving a Lotus Cortina. Uh, Holland is leading George Baker in the Jaguar by 38 seconds, which is quite a considerable difference. In fact, uh, Holland is through and away past me while George Baker is still going round Reservoir Bend up near John Wallace. Well, that's how quickly the field has spread out in only three laps of this 30-lap race. And just before we hand you back to the studio at half past nine, at 9.30 exactly, we'll take one swing round and see where the cars are in the back stretches. Where were they and how were they standing when they passed you, Warren Rook? Well, Baker did lead the field up the hill. He's still leading uh, over uh, Henry Lee in the Lotus Cortina and uh, also K.H. Chang. John Kirk is coming through and he has taken uh, David Marr's Jaguar. He was behind David Marr for the last lap. He's now taken the Jaguar and he's a good door, 20 or 30 car lengths in front as they go up Hospital Hill into Solitude S's. I think the leader should now be approaching Clive Simpson at Transmitter Turn. Well, the leader, Steve Holland, is coming up Moorish Hill and expecting him through here at the hairpin bend any second now. None of the other cars have appeared yet. Yes, here comes Steve Holland. I'll put the clock on him to see how far ahead he is of the second car, which still hasn't appeared in Faraway Hill. Steve Holland heading down very fast towards the Melco hairpin, and as he does that, I can see the group of four cars coming down on the top of Faraway Hill. There's George Baker, the two Lotus Cortinas, and the BMW. No change at all. For three laps now, they've been going around in exactly the same position. And there goes Steve Holland down the back straight, really putting his foot down, and pressing home this fine lead, which is made already. It must be a lead, I should think, of about 50 seconds. I can see John Kirk coming down. Uh, he's got a lead now over the jag of about 100 yards. And here come the four, the group of the four cars. George Baker, the two Lotus Cortinas, and the BMW. Absolutely neck and neck here. Over now to John Wallace at Reservoir Bay. As Steve goes by me and I have the watch on him, and I uh, must confess that I was wrong in my prognostication that John Kirk, once having got past David Maher, would set off like a bat out of the proverbial. He doesn't seem to be making much more of an increase in his lead over David, and also, by the same token, is not catching up with the group of four that are so far behind Steve Holland. That group of four, of course, being good old George and his good old Jag, that's George Baker and the Jag 3.4, uh, which is just about as old as George, I think, or perhaps not. And then come the two Lotus Cortinas, 83 and 84, of K.H. Chang and Henry Lee. And then the BMW 1800, Tourist International of Peter Chow. Here they come, in that order now. And George Baker passed me first. Oh, and that was very close indeed, as... as K.H. Chang tried to take Henry Lee's Cortina on the inside. He nearly bumped him in the back. 
And the lead is exactly 50 seconds. Steve Holland over George Baker. And here is John Kirk, fastest now. And he's gaining on the ground and he's gritting his teeth. So as that little race develops, four of them together. John Kirk, I think, catching up with them. And none of them getting anywhere near Steve Holland. Let's go to Ted Thomas at the grandstand. And there's only just time to tell you that uh, George Baker goes past now. Henry Lee, Chang, Pete Chow in the BMW in that order. One, two, three, four. Very quickly. Baker in the Jaguar, 3.4. Henry Lee in the Lotus Cortina. K.H. Chang in the Lotus Cortina. And in fifth position, Peter Chow. And that's all we have time for you with the cars on the fifth lap out of this 30-lap race here at the Gear Circuit in Macau. We're going to return you to the studios of Radio Hong Kong. The 1965 Macau Grand Prix there, with, among other commentators, Ted Thomas reporting. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>